Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. I feel like this is one of those days where my heart and mind are so full with the things we're going to be looking at this morning that... uh, I don't know how you are, but sometimes when I get in that state, it's hard to talk. <laughs> I find like my thoughts get jumbled a bit, and uh, even though you try to avoid that, it, it seems to happen. So if that happens, bear with me. I am trying to fight that by how I've structured our time today. Originally, I was going to cover what we're looking at this morning in a single sermon, or I was at least going to attempt to do it, but I decided if I was trying to go that fast through the content today, I would end up being very confusing, and I don't want to do that at all. So I've actually broken this into... At least two parts. It may end up being three. It just kind of depends on how next week goes. But we're going to uh, take some time today, begin looking at a subject. I'm going to stop. We'll pray. We'll come back together next week and continue. So if you're here today, you're pretty much now required to be back for next Sunday and or to listen online. All right, we're going to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 1. Paul writes, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and, devour one, <clears throat> bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now and we ask your blessing on our time. Lord, we desperately need it. We need you to open our eyes because <clears throat> you alone are the, are the one who can do that. And so there is nothing in my feeble words here that will change hearts. There's nothing in any of our wisdom, our thoughts that can ever change our hearts. It is your grace. It is by faith and through your spirit alone that we are ever changed. And I pray this morning that we will begin to understand that, to be reminded of the great grace that we have in you, the great love that you have poured out on us, and that we will understand at least a little bit, at least begin to understand what exactly or who exactly we are now in Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, I'm going to show you a picture that, uh, quite honestly, I'm not sure how to respond to it. And as I show you this picture, I'm going to ask your help with a little thing. I, 
I don't want you to react. You're going to be tempted to laugh because it is a bit funny. I'm not going to pretend it's not. But um, the more I have looked at it and the longer I've sat on this picture, the more I have kind of changed my understanding of why this picture is meaningful. So here it is. As you can see, it is a van advertising Bojack's Bail Bonds here in Virginia Beach, and their slogan is, Get Your Baby Daddy Back, right? And which is humorous, I get. That's why I took the picture originally. I saw it as I was driving down Princess Anne Road one day, and I was like, what? Did I really just see that as a slogan of a business? And I turned the car around and went back and parked in the parking lot and got out and took the photo of it. Because at the time, I, I did think it was funny. I, I don't know a whole lot about the bail bond business. What little I do know is that I, I think it's kind of a, a rough <laughs> business or industry to be a part of. Because what you're dealing with in that particular line of work are people who are at some of the lowest points of their life. They are... They've made terrible choices, terrible decisions, and now they're paying for it, literally, and you're a part of that. And so, you know, now you've got these people whose lives you're a part of who are just very broken, very messed up. And so on the one hand, yeah, I kind of originally thought the slogan was a little bit funny, but then the more I looked at it and the more I thought about it, the more sad the picture made me over time. Um, Because it struck me that, you know, while BoJack may indeed be able to get your baby daddy out of jail, the likelihood is if you're in that situation and this kind of slogan even interests you, your life is probably imprisoned whether or not you're behind bars at all. You may get out of jail, but I don't imagine you're probably going back to a much better scenario than what you walked out of when you left it. And the reason I'm showing you this is because in a most unfortunate way, and I could not stress that enough, there seems to me to be some overlap between my feelings about this particular picture and all that it represents and what may be the practical experience of far too many believers. What I'm referring to here is the way that many Christians tend to both view and experience their Christian life. So for many believers, Jesus isn't much different to them than old Bojack here. You know, he's the guy that they turn to when they finally hit rock bottom and and they're in jail and life's kind of a mess and And so now here Jesus comes, and they're saved, let out of jail, so to speak. But even though they are no longer behind bars, they continue then to just go out and living their life in the same sort of imprisoned lifestyle that kind of got them where they were in the first place, if I was going to stick with this analogy a little bit longer. And so what it does then is it forces me to ask a particular question, and the question is, what do we really believe about the gospel? What do we really believe? Do we, do we view the gospel as being just sort of our get out of hell, hell free ticket, that it's, it's just there to save us from hell, but not to set us free from the very things that, you know, maybe put us down that path in the first place? And I seriously doubt, I seriously doubt that any or very many of you in this room would affirm that, that you would say, yes, Stacey, that's all I think the gospel's for, get out of hell, and then I'm done. It doesn't have any more value after that. But if you were to be brutally honest, not with me, just with yourself, I would wonder maybe if you actually feel like that's true, that it actually does do more for you than simply deliver you from hell. You you probably, or many people, it seems like, do feel very enslaved and very much imprisoned even after they turn to Christ. And throughout this letter, as we've been going through it here over the past weeks and months, you know, Paul has been arguing against the Old Testament law. And as we've been walking through this, our focus has been primarily on 
The reason why the Old Testament law cannot, never could, and never will save anyone. According to Paul, salvation comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the evidence that this is true is found by the fact that it is through turning by grace through faith into Jesus Christ that we receive the promised Holy Spirit, the thing that God had promised to Israel long, long ago in the New, uh, new Covenant. If you forgot where that was talked about, that was the beginning of chapter 3 in Galatians. I know it's been a few months since we've been there. So if I take all that we've seen over the last few months and I put it together, what I see is that salvation through the law, if that's where I'm trying to get my acceptance before God, salvation by the law isn't by grace. It is something I have to earn, I have to keep. It's not focused on faith. It's focused on works. And by following the law, I end up not getting that promised spirit. What I just get is increased and, and uh, continued condemnation. I find that there's no freedom there, just slavery. This is what we've been seeing over and over again over the past few months. And all of that is 100% true, particularly as we have been looking at it the way that Paul's been presenting it in relation to the topic of salvation. But what about sanctification? What about that topic? And I won't assume that everyone in the room knows what these words mean or they have equal definitions. So let me give you a little bit of help here. Here's a definition for both salvation and sanctification. Salvation refers to how we're saved. Duh, that was kind of an easy one. It's, it refers to how we're declared righteous before God. Sanctification refers to how we then live out that salvation. How we then go on to live out that righteousness before God on a day-to-day -day basis for as long as we live. And I said to you last Sunday that I think, and you can disagree with me, and that's fine, but this is my time, not yours, so I'll say what I want. I think that many Christians have built or constructed an unbiblical wall in their minds between the ideas of salvation and sanctification. They, they treat them as if they are two completely different destinations on a map. Com connected, yes, I, I get that. They would, who would deny that? But but practically, they are removed from and entirely different than one another. But I hope you realize, even if you don't fully understand that, I haven't really developed it a, a lot yet, but I hope you realize right off the bat that that is not true. That these two things are not like completely removed from one another uh, in any sense. It's not true for us, and it definitely wasn't true for the false teachers that Paul was arguing against here in Galatians. If we could bring one of these false teachers into the room this morning and say, here, you got 10 minutes. Explain to us your theology. Explain to us what your understanding of the law is and how it plays itself out in our lives. I'm pretty sure that we would hear something to this effect, that the Old Testament law is both the means by which we are accepted by God and the means by which we live acceptably before God. Now, I want you to think about what I just said there. The Old Testament law is both the means by which we are accepted by God, what's that? Salvation. And it is also, at the same time, the means by which we live acceptably before God. What's that? That's sanctification. I don't think any Jew in Israel in Paul's day, or likely any other time, would have ever separated those two ideas, ever. As if one's over here and one's over there, and you might do one, you know, someone could not be accepted by God through circumcision or whatever the case may be, who then did not go on to live acceptably before God via the Old Testament law, 
any more than someone could live acceptably before God through the Old Testament law without having first done the things needed to be accepted by God through the law. In the Jewish mind, these are not separable ideas. They are two sides of an inseparable coin. And as such, when Paul says to them that the Old Testament law has expired and that it has been replaced by faith in Christ, understand that he is not only radically altering their understanding of salvation, he is at the same time radically altering their understanding of sanctification, what it means to live acceptably before God as well. And this, in the end, is why I think chapters 5 and 6 are here. You know, having you know, blown up their former understanding, there are now questions. Questions that come out of that. Like, whoa, 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 everything you've said is true, Paul. Well, what does this mean for us? How are we going to live? What do we need to do? And so Paul now needs to address those very issues and concerns that just naturally flow out from everything else he has said up to this point. Because as I just said, you can't separate the ideas. In their mind, the law isn't just for salvation or just for sanctification. It's, it's both. And since those ideas are inseparable, if the law has expired for one, then logically it's expired for the other as well. So then how should we live? And Paul answers that question here with one single word in verse 1, and that word is freedom. This is how you should live. You then should live in freedom. And last Sunday, I asked you if you really understood and believed not just this one word, but this entire statement here that Paul opens up with. I said, you know, you, you didn't have to answer it then. And guess what? You still don't have to answer it today uh, because I want to make sure that we really understand it first before we then try to determine in our own hearts whether or not we believe it, much less with how we go about living it. And so that's all we're going to do today. Okay. Just understand this one word, freedom. What does this mean? What does it mean to say that we have freedom now in Christ? Uh, and, and we're going to give ourselves to that. It's a little bit larger than I think can, one sermon can handle. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Uh, one of my favorite commentaries on Galatians, Scott McKnight's commentary, uh, in it he did a fantastic job of going through not just Galatians but all of Paul's writings and finding this idea of freedom and trying to take them all and boil them down to give us a, an understanding of what freedom means to Paul, what freedom means in the New Testament. And he boiled it down to six main categories or ideas that I'm going to share with you. So I'm just taking his skeleton. I'm going to put some of my own meat on it. Uh, I said to the first service, I've said it in the past, if you hear anything today then that sounds logical and biblical and godly, assume it's from him. Anything else, assume it's mine, and that'll keep us pretty clear throughout the way. All we're going to do is look at two this morning, and then we'll pick up the others next week. So here's number one. First, as we think about freedom and what that means, we should observe that being free is tied to having a relationship with God. Being free is tied to having a relationship with God. And he gives three examples, and I'll give them to you. First, for example, we are now free from the curse of the law. If you have your Bible still open, if you don't, open them up. I want you to look back at Galatians chapter 3 for just a moment. In Galatians 3, 10 to 14, Paul describes what we were and what has happened to us around this idea. And he says there, beginning in verse 10, that formerly, when we relied on the works of the law, both to be accepted by God and to live acceptably before him on a daily basis, we were not free in fact, what were we? We were under a curse. 
That's what he says there. And that word curse here in Galatians 3, it is a loaded term because it describes the state of animosity that existed between God and us as a result of our sin. God was not accepting of us in any way. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here for the most part. You guys, no doubt, will accept that and believe it. Just recognize, though, that the vast majority of the people in the world around us do not accept this. I'm even talking about a lot of Christians, people who call themselves Christians. They, don't, they do not accept this as being true, that God is in a state of animosity towards people. They like to view him as being naturally accepting of them and benevolent towards them. But Paul says otherwise. He says, we were under a curse. We were under his wrath. But, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from that curse, from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. Now, notice the word redeemed there, because that is also a loaded term, and it stands in this particular context as basically a synonym for freedom. Christ came and delivered us from this curse. He bought us out of slavery. He purchased our freedom by taking our place, thus putting us in a right relationship with God through faith in him. Therefore, we're free from the curse. Here's another example. He says, we're now free from our status as sinners. And you don't have to turn to this one, but if you'd like to take notes, write it down. This is coming from Romans chapter 6. Two times, twice. At the end of Romans 6, in verse 17, again in verse 20, Paul describes us, you, you, me, as being or having been, excuse me, slaves of sin. Slaves. And we, we, we read that and um, it means nothing to us. We gloss right over that phrase because either we've read it so many times or we've heard it so much that we just don't even, don't even pay attention to it. So let me try to help you meditate on the thought that's being uh, uh, communicated there just a bit. Have you ever uh, woke up in the morning one day, Monday perhaps, tomorrow morning, and been like, man, I really hate my job. I wish I could be a slave. No. Nobody ever in their worst day of work wakes up and thinks that. But that's a stupid illustration. Let me make it really, really uncomfortable for you. Imagine, parents, or if you're not a parent, imagine you were for a moment, that you, one of your children came to you and said, hey, mom, hey, dad, I've been thinking, and I really want to get involved in human trafficking, not as the one doing the trafficking. I want to be trafficked. I want to be a sex slave. I, I want to be a forced laborer. Are you okay with that, mom? And we, we, we hear that, and that's just like a repulsive idea. Like, you, you can't even hardly, like, fathom the thought that would, like, how would you ever possibly respond? It's, it's a hideous idea to me to ever think that my children would end up in slavery like that. And yet, we, we'll be so bothered by this idea in the physical realm, but when we bring it into the spiritual realm, we just gloss over it? As if it doesn't really matter? It's the same thing. You were slaves to sin. You were slaves. Can you remember what you were enslaved to? Think back to your past. Think back to that time before you came to Christ for salvation. What were you enslaved to? Were you enslaved to sexual sins? Was it promiscuity, immorality, homosexuality, pornography? What was it? Were you enslaved to substances, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, food, whatever the case may be? Was it money and possessions and greed? Did you live your life day in and day out simply for the things you could acquire? Was it your own pride and arrogance? 
where the world revolved around you and you wanted everyone else's world to revolve around you as well? What was it? You can remember, no doubt. You can think back to those things that enslaved you. Well, whatever it was, Paul says, two times then in response to that at the end of Romans 6, he says that you have been set free from those things. You've been set free, verse 18, having been set free from slavery to sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. You're still a slave, but you have a whole lot better master. Verse 22, again, he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Because right before that, he said, when you were slaves of sin, what did you get? What was the fruit? What was the payment that came out of it? Think of everything you were ever enslaved to. What was the benefit? You got pain, you got fear, you got shame, you got guilt, you got hurt. You never once got any of the things sin promised you. Think about what you get now as a slave of righteousness. You get sanctification that leads to its end, eternal life. And just think about how definite and sure Paul is with those statements. It's not maybe you're free, or you'll be free eventually, it's you have been set free, done, period, past tense. It's real, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you experience it or not, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are free. It is as done and true as it could ever be. So if you are now in a right relationship with God through Christ, mark this down, you are free from your sin, period. Third example, we are now, because of the relationship we have with God, the freedom that we have through Christ, we are now viewed as free children of God. And this is very recent, so I won't ask you to turn to it because I'm hoping you remember it. This is from the analogy that Paul ended with at the end of chapter four, the analogy of Hagar and Sarah. Do you remember this? We were just there. Hagar is a slave woman who represents Mount Sinai and the slavery that comes from living under the law. Sarah is the free woman. She represents Mount Calvary and the freedom that comes through living in faith and through the Spirit. And both of these women had and continue to have children. The children of Hagar are those who continue to live their lives under the law, seeking either to be accepted by God on their own merits or to live acceptably before God based on those merits. These are children of slavery. The children of Sarah are those who now live their lives by faith and in the spirit. These are children of freedom. They used to be children of slavery, but the time set by the Father has come. Remember that from earlier in Galatians 4? The time set by the Father has come, and God sent his Son to redeem those who were under the law so that we could receive adoption as sons, so that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Therefore, he says in verse 7, chapter 4, we are no longer slaves, but free sons. And if free sons, we're heirs through God. So what all of these examples have in common is that they show us how our freedom is now tied to this new relationship we have with the Father. We used to be under a curse, but we're now free from that curse. We used to be enslaved to sin. We're now free from the tyranny of sin. We used to be children of slavery. Now we are children of freedom, free sons in Christ. And all of this, all of this, folks, is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Which leads then naturally to the second topic of freedom, second being free, then, is the result of the death of Christ. 
being free is the result of the death of Christ. And while we have to treat this one, um, excuse me, uh, well, we have to treat this one individually, recognize that it is interwoven into all of the other five, okay? There's no, we're never going to get away from this one. It's going to be the constant drumbeat throughout our time in, in this section, understanding what freedom is. It's all coming back to Jesus. And so because of that, on the one hand, I don't feel like I have to spend a, a ton of time and try to run down every little rabbit trail that, that we might find in the scriptures here. And yet at the same time, I don't want to skip it. And so let's just, let's just do this. You're still in Galatians. Let's go back to the very beginning of Galatians now, to chapter 1. And I want us to revisit something that we saw at the very opening of the letter. This was like almost a year ago. I think we started in September of last year. So it's been a long, long time, and no doubt you've forgotten. But let's go back and read Paul's greeting, okay? Paul's greeting here in verse 3. He says, Grace to you, to the Galatians, and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, did you notice the two things that he said here about Christ? First, he says that he gave himself for our sins. Okay, so we were the ones in slavery. We were the ones under the curse, yet he gave himself for our sins to take our place. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, you need to like wake up and listen to this, to remember this. I know you've heard it over and 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 over, and it's easy to begin to forget it and easy to begin to just ignore it. But you need to hear this with fresh ears that God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son, who have known all things perfectly since before the foundation of the world, who knew full well who you were, what you would do, everything that you would end up being in life, decided in advance to set their love upon you, not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And so God planned, planned. Before Genesis 1-1, before let there be light, before any of these things, he planned to send his son to die for your sins in your place so that you could be made right with him based on nothing other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, faith in him. And you know, let's make this really practical for a moment, because I, I, again, I feel like this is so trite. It, it loses its meaning and significance. So let's think about this in relationship to the idea of disappointment. Disappointment. Are you often disappointed? Don't answer it. Uh, I am. I am an, I'm often disappointed. And the reason why I am often disappointed is because I hope for or expect things that do not come to pass. All right, so this is true of myself. I hope to do things or to be things in all kinds of areas of life that I end up not doing or being, and so I'm disappointed with myself. I become disappointed with other people because I hope for responses or reactions that will go a certain direction in their life, and then they fail to do it, so I become disappointed in them. I, I become disappointed with situations because maybe I'm hoping for something good to happen or I'm hoping that something bad won't happen. And then what do I get? I get the opposite. And so I'm disappointed in, in what happened in the situation. Okay, So I'm often a disappointed person. But I want you to think about this. And if this is like a mind-blowing thought for you, just sit on it for a week or two. Do you realize that God can never be disappointed? I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. God can never be 
disappointed. Well, why? Well, the reason is, is that he never hopes for or expects something that doesn't come to pass. I mean, he, he knows all things. There's never a moment that he has looked at my life and been like, oh man, I cannot believe Stacy did that. I didn't see that coming at all. I'd really hoped he was going to go this way, but he, <laughs> he zigged instead of zagged. It's never happened. I've never disappointed him because he's never been surprised by any of my bad choices, any of my sins, any of my, and he's never been disappointed in that sense in you as well. He knows you. He knows all things. He knew before I was ever born, before he ever laid the foundations of the world, every thought I would think, every word I would ever speak, every action I would ever do, every choice I would ever make. And get this, he knew every sin that I would ever commit against him. I have never once acted contrary to how he knew I would act. I've never once surprised him by doing something he thought I wouldn't do and knowing full well, full well, who I was and what I would be and what I would do. He loved me anyway. He loved me anyway. Would you do that? If you knew full well the people in your life, everything they would do to hurt you, every time they would sin against you, offend you, do you think you'd stick with them now? If you could see it all start to finish, I wouldn't. Maybe I'm more sinful than you, but he loved me anyway. Not because of my works. Oh my goodness, no. Because if he loves me based on my works, I am hopeless. I am hopeless. It was never based on my works. It was based on his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, he loved me because he wanted to. He loves you because he wanted to. And he loves you in grace and he loves you and he loves me so much that he sent his only son into the world to give himself for my sins, all of them. And he knew them all. He gave himself for all of them. Can, can you not hear this and, and think about this and, and not in the end fall to your knees thanking God for the amazing grace that he has shown in your life? Why? Why, God, would you ever, ever pick me? I have no explanation apart from his own purpose in his own grace. But notice one final thing, and then we'll pause until next Sunday. Yes, he gave himself for our sins, Paul says, but it wasn't just like for no reason. He did it to deliver. You know, I want you to take a wild guess. Think of a synonym for the word deliver. Oh, I don't know, maybe free? How about that? Freedom? He gave himself for our sins, not just to free us from the curse, not to free us just from the wrath of God, yes, those things, but to free us from this present evil age. If you're a, an underlining type, you should underline that because it's kind of important. What it means there is that our salvation in Christ is not just pie in the sky future salvation. It's not just that. It's not just salvation from hell and salvation from the penalty of sin and salvation from some kind of future punishment. It is also, it's all those things, but it is also salvation now. Now. It is salvation from current sin, from ourselves. You, you and I probably have no concept of, of, of how big of an enemy we are to ourselves, our flesh and its passions and desires. It's, it's from the world and its prince. You realize you used to walk in step with that. 
used to be a son of disobedience who followed along with this world and the prince of the power of the air who called to you, you've been freed from all of this. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky future salvation. It is boots-on-the-ground-now salvation. And all of this comes by the purpose and grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I get it. You're going to hear all of this, some of you, maybe most of us, I think. You're going to hear that, and you're not going to really believe it today. And I'm okay with that for the moment. I really am, because we got more work to do, and, and so I, you know, we're still working, and I'm fine with you, you know, just holding on to your angst here for a bit longer. But I get it, though. You, you, the, the reason is, is, is you don't really feel free. You don't. You, you know that you're freed from sin in some, like, future sense or some kind of like theoretical sense, but to live it, live it, that's, that's different. And so you still feel very much enslaved to your sin or to yourself or to this world or to fear, guilt, shame, or most likely all of the above. You don't feel free. So you see what Paul says here, but you're, not, you're still just not sure if you believe it. Well, uh, not to get too like Hallmarky or Joel Osteeny on us this morning, but um, I'm going to give you a little saying here that you've heard before. Believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. Let me put it in a, maybe a more biblical phrase. You have to walk by faith. You have to walk by faith, not by sight. You have to walk by faith, especially, especially if you're struggling. And believers, listen to me. You're free. You are free. You're free. You're free from sin. You're free from yourself. You are free from this world. You are really and truly as free as free can possibly be in Jesus Christ. So if you want to do something this week to begin trying to reinforce that thought in your mind and to prepare your heart for where this is continuing, may I suggest to you that you read Romans 6 through 8 every day this week? Just commit yourself to it. And when I say read it, I don't mean like... You're not a speed reader, like flying through it. I mean, read it. Read it. Wrestle through it. Look at the text. Listen to what Paul is saying there. Argue with him. Fight with him. I don't care. There are going to be parts of it you're going to read and you're going to get troubled by. Parts of it are going to confuse you. Parts of it you're going to have questions by. Okay, that's great. Note those things. But what I really want you to focus on is this idea that you are really and truly free. And even though you may not always live like that, and even though right now you may not believe that, this is who you truly are in Christ. And I want us to focus on that this week, this identity alone. And so until we gather again next Sunday, will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, you have told us who we are. We are free. But there is oftentimes in our hearts and minds a division between who we are and how we live. And I know this is the case. I know it. It's the struggle every single person in this room has to live out the truths that are ours in Christ. It is so easy to fall back to what we knew and so hard to move forward and live in what we've been given. But I pray, Lord, that throughout this week as we wrestle with your word and we think through the text, as we think about this idea that we are really and truly free, this isn't just a slogan, it is an identity that your spirit will take that truth and begin to show us just how true it really is. 
Reveal our own self-dependency. Reveal our tendency to want to make ourselves acceptable before you by how we live or things we do or don't do. In the end, it's all slavery. You have made us free through Jesus alone, and we are now to go out and live by faith and the power of the Spirit on a daily basis. And so that's what I ask for us this week, that you will begin working that out in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.